so we are going to be in Daniel chapter 2, uh, all the way through Daniel chapter 3 tonight. So imagine that I told you a funny story to get started, and then let's just go. All right, so here's, here's our main idea. Um, trials and opposition are an opportunity for our trust in Jesus to shine brighter than ever. And, and even as I say that, you might be like, wait a minute, what? Those, those words in that sentence don't seem to make sense together. And so what we'll see, you've already watched the film, you've seen, we move into this moment where the trial becomes more significant. And, and my hope is as we look at these two chapters, what you're gonna see is that trials and opposition aren't this thing that you run from, aren't this thing to catch you off guard, but they're actually an opportunity and they're an opportunity that for those who say they love Jesus, for their trust in Jesus to be made more real. Now, maybe you're here, maybe you're not at that point where you're trusting Jesus yet. My hope for you is that this actually uh, prepares you for the reality of what it is to walk with Jesus. Because I think a lot of times people fail in their faith or become afraid in their faith because, number, because one, I think somehow we've believed this lie that when you trust Jesus, that all of a sudden life is like an episode of the cartoon Carrot Bears where all of a sudden like things are nice and great and rainbows shoot out of your stomach and life is going to be just that easy. Some of you are like, I don't know what a Care Bear is. The 80s were weird, that's all you need to know. <laughs> but my hope is that even if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, that you would see that maybe even some of the things that you are dealing with back home, that in trusting Jesus, you actually get an opportunity to trust him more deeply with the trials that you're facing, not run the opposite direction. So, like I mentioned, we're going to spend time in Daniel chapter 2 and 3, but let me pray before we jump in. So, Jesus, um, I'm praying that in a way that goes far beyond my ability to communicate words, that you'd impress this truth on all of our hearts, mine included. And that, Lord, over the next few moments as we look at the example of Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael and the way that they trust you in the face of opposition and trial, that it would be um, a reminder and maybe an inspiration for us to know you on that level and to trust you in the same way. It's in your name I pray, amen. So I'm not gonna read word for word throughout the entirety of chapter two. I'm actually gonna summarize big portions of it for you. Um, but I, I want you to get a feel for the story because I think understanding what's happening in chapter two makes the, the reality of chapter three uh, that much more ironic. And so chapter two starts with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and Nebuchadnezzar then begins to summon all of these magicians, Chaldeans, interpreters that he's been training all this time that says, hey, I'm having a dream. I had a dream. I need you to tell me both the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And all those that work for him are like, hey, like this would be a whole lot easier if you would just tell us the dream and then we could interpret that for you. And he said, no, there's wickedness in your heart. And you're trying to deceive me. And he then begins to threaten them. Literally says, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb if you can't tell me both the dream and the interpretation. To which they are like, all right, you're acting a little crazy this morning. Let's talk, just try this again. We want to honor you, but it'd be helpful if you tell us the dream. And he said, no, you're stalling because you're full of deceit. And so then he turns to his guy, Arioch, and he says, Arioch, round up all of these wise men, including Daniel and his boys, and kill them all. And so Arioch shows up to Daniel, and Daniel's like, why is this so urgent? Can I have some time to go before the Lord and see if I can figure this out? And when we jump into verse 17, 
you'll see Daniel doing this very thing. And here's what it says. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. Now, I just want to pause because I think there's something really important in the middle of everything that's going on, that in this moment of crisis, here's what we see Daniel do. He does two things, and I think there are actually two really important things that we can learn from. And one of those is in the middle of his crisis, the first thing that he does is he decides that he needs to go to the Lord and pray. I just want to ask the question that when life swings at you, Because there are moments when life hits you and it's like a gut punch. There are moments when you get hit by life and you can't find the ground. One of the questions I want to ask is, what is your initial reaction? Is your initial reaction to try and fix it yourself or find somebody with the answer or try and find a way out? Or is it to say that the God whom I say that I trust, that you may be, you are in control of all things, even this, I want to trust you. But number two I love it that he calls his friends and says, will you pray with me? I just want to ask, when crisis happens, do you have a set of friends that you run to who aren't going to try and tell you, hey, I saw somebody on TikTok talking about this? Or some friends who say, man, that really stinks. Or maybe the friends that just leave you on red when you text them because you're like, "Um, things are going on, I need your help, and you just see dots. My prayer is that you have friends around you that when life is at its nastiest, that they're like, okay, let's go before the Lord together. My prayer is not only that you have friends like that, my prayer is that you are a friend like that. Like, I want to be the person when crisis happens that I've got 2 a.m. friends, that they don't care what time it is, what situation it is, that they can text me and call me and say, hey, Mike, here's what's going down. Will you go to the Lord with me in this? Surround yourself with people that when life is at its worst, are gonna point you to the God that you trust. So this is what they do. And then the Lord reveals the dream to Daniel, and then Daniel's natural reaction when the Lord does that is that he goes back before the Lord and he begins to worship the Lord. And so hear what he says, starting in verse 20. And he declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and established kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer him thanks and I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you've given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. And I just don't want to miss the fact that when he starts thinking about where wisdom comes from and where power comes from and where knowledge comes from, he doesn't say, you know, I was trained for several years to do this, but he looks to God and says, the reason that I can do what I'm doing is because you have granted it to me. I just hope for you that regardless of how gifted you are, that you understand that those gifts come from the Lord. And when you get a a possibility to receive favor or promotion for those things, that you don't ever get caught looking at yourself and be like, man, I'm awesome. My prayer is that you look to the Lord and say that the only reason that this is possible is because of you. And so then Daniel 
ask Arioch to spare all the other wise men because wise men because he understands the king's dream and can interpret it, and then ask to go before the king. And when he does, he explains the dream. And at this point, you're like, look, we're 20-something verses in. You won't tell me what this dream is or not. And so here's the dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees the statue that is built out of multiple metals. The head is gold, the chest is silver, the, the legs and into the thighs are bronze, and then going down there's copper, and then into the feet it's, uh, it's like iron and clay. And then here is the interpretation of the dream. The dream is actually this image of kingdoms, the, the, the top kingdom being the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar and his current kingdom and then subsequent kingdoms below it. And in the dream, what happens is there is a stone that is thrown, and the stone is not a stone that could be thrown by any human hand, but it's thrown by what seems to be the hand of God. It hits the statue, crushes it into pieces, and then a mountain is raised up in its place. And so Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and explains this dream to him. And the point of the dream is you have a great kingdom, but you're going to get replaced. And every kingdom after you is also going to get replaced. But there is going to be a day when the Lord decides that he's going to crush these other subsequent kingdoms. And there will be no other kingdom that will stand in front of or in place of the kingdom that he is establishing. You're temporary, my friend, but God will stand forever. And Nebuchadnezzar's response to this is, is kind of amazing. Verse 46 of chapter 2 would say, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He, gave him, he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now, what I want to do here before we move too quickly is, um, one, we talked about this yesterday, and I don't want to miss it. I just want to set you up for what's coming next. Mo promotions mean mo problems. And so again, I don't want you to end chapter two being like, well, that worked out great. There was a conflict, the, the Lord resolved the conflict, revealed the dream, and now things are better. Daniel's been promoted to chief governor over all of the wise men. He's uh, over all of the province of Babylon. His boys also are over province, the province of Babylon. Like this is working out well. Anytime you see a promotion in the book of Daniel means mo problems are coming. Here's the second thing. I don't want you to mistake this moment of Nebuchadnezzar falling down on his face, saying your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, that, that his way that he's appreciating Daniel, giving him gifts, giving him promotion. What I don't want you to, to mistake this for is repentance. And, and some of you are like, man, that's kind of harsh. Like, you don't know this dude's heart. You ain't never sat down with him and hear, heard his prayers. Uh, here's why I think that. Chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Let's just have a real conversation. If you had a dream tonight that you should not eat French fries or, and, and drink a shake with it, because if you do, the Lord's going to give you a stomachache. 
It'd be real dumb if you're over at the snack shop getting fries and a, and a milkshake. So if you've had this epic dream that nobody could interpret but Daniel, that God shows that there's this statue that's been built, that there's going to be a stone that comes from heaven and destroy a statue, the first thing on my to-do list on the next day, I'm like, you know what? Man, I want to honor the Lord, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to build a statue of myself. Like, this just doesn't seem to make sense to me, but, but he does. So um, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, I don't even know what a zither is, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of, mu of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every other kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And I just want to talk about the arrogance. The arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar to build this statue of himself and tell people to stand around the statue and worship. Uh, in that day and age, oftentimes what kings would do to show that they ruled over an area or a place is that they would set up some kind of monument, statue, or image of themselves to make sure that people knew that this thing belonged to them. So in ancient days, you would walk through ancient gardens and there would either be uh, statues or there, there would be these icons that were set up that when you walked through that particular garden, you would know oh, this garden belongs to king so-and-so. This garden belongs to such and such a person. Or you would see that even in more modern times when, uh, when we moved into like the New Testament times, there would be images of a king on money. And so it'd be like, hey, all that you have, all that you do, it belongs to me. The fact that you can purchase your food, just remember that I've got authority over that. Even in our nation, there's a reason why our presidents are on our money because it means that they are foundational to the identity of our country. And so this idea of setting up the image is not just, oh, this dude's kind of vain and wants to have a statue for himself because it makes him feel good. It's also this indication that this is what lords over you. That the image is supposed to communicate that this is where the authority rests. And this image, when you worship and submit to this image, it means you're aligning yourself to say that this has authority over me. And it's interesting because that's not just a play by kings in the ancient Near East. It's not just a play by Nebuchadnezzar. It's actually the original play of God. This is why when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and it says that it said, let us make man in our image, what God is doing is in his garden, he's trying to set up image bearers that say to the world that this is where I rule, this is where I reign, this is how you can see who I am. And so now we've got kingdoms in conflict. We've got the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar where he's trying to say, I rule, I reign, therefore you worship me, except for now you have these image bearers who are supposed to show that God rules and God reigns and they're supposed to worship him and now there is a conflict and the question I wanna ask you is, what image rules over you? 
What is the thing that when you bow your heart and submit that you look at and say, this has mastery over me. This has my highest affection. This has my highest loyalty. This is what I will bow down, lay face down to and say, all my affection goes to you because it's meant to belong to God because you were made in his image. But far too often, I think we settle for being image bearers of something else. And this is the difficulty that Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael find themselves in. Image bearers of God meant to represent him now being asked to be image bearers and worshipers of something else. More promotions equal more problems. Verse 8 would say this. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship at the gold statue that I have set up? Now if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? I just, I just want to pause. This is, this is not hey, for a few days, don't eat this food and see what happens. We've moved from asking you to assimilate into a culture to now threatening what you will worship. And if you don't, here is the highest price that you will pay, that you will give up your life. We have moved from just um, an uncomfortable situation where your identity is being challenged to now a trial and opposition that may cost them everything. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't, need you to get, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. And I don't want you to miss this. And, and Mikey spent a lot of time here on Sunday because this is the, the verse that's the central point of the theme that we're trying to impress upon you about resilient faith. But what I want you to see that's so deeply embedded in that is this trust for God that's not based on what God does. Uh, there used to be a, a pastor, he passed away earlier this year. His name is Tim Keller. And he used to say, there's a distinction between God being useful to you and God being precious to you. 
If something's useful to you, it means it accomplishes the purposes that you want it to do. And so if I walked up here with a toolkit and I needed to fix something on the stage, we'll just use the example from Sunday. If the stage were on fire again and I came in here with a fire extinguisher, that would be useful to me because it could solve the problem that I have. But something that's precious to me is precious to me not because it gets the job done, because, but because I value it for what it is. And the statement that they're making is, the God that we serve is, is perfectly capable of delivering us from this. But we don't serve him because he's useful. We serve him because he's precious. We serve him because he is the image of the, the everlasting God, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, the, the Lord of kings. You, you remember last chapter when you talked about him that way. He is still that for us, whether he gets us out of this or not. So the question is, is God useful to you or is he precious to you? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. The expression on his face changed from change towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent the furnace, and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. The other thing I want you to see is how uncaring Nebuchadnezzar is about those who worship him. He is willing to sacrifice them to prove the point of if those that if people don't obey me, that they are going to suffer. He's willing to give up the lives of some of his best soldiers so he can send people into a furnace that is burning seven times hot and making sure that he can prove his point of taking life. First of all, can we just have a real conversation? Why do you have a furnace that gets that hot anyways? But he would rather be exalted than to care about the people who are supposed to be worshiping him. Can I just tell you, if you don't know this, that the God that you serve is the opposite, that instead of exalting himself at the expense of you, he would actually expend himself on, for the benefit of you. That this is the story of what Jesus accomplishes, that God would become flesh and give himself up, that you might know his goodness and worship him. Instead of using you as a pawn in a play of making himself look great, he's willing to give himself up that you might know his greatness. And then verse 24, then, the, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Apparently, he likes tearing people limb from limb. For there is no other god who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Don't forget, more promotions, more problems. And what we see that I don't want you to miss is that we serve a God that has supernatural power. Like I, I I'm, you may not know this about me. You don't, you don't know me that well, and you, you have me yell at you for like 35 minutes at a time, so you probably don't get to learn a lot about me in that, that amount of time. I'm actually a really logical person. Like, I like things to make sense. I like them to work in sequence. I like them to be, um, I like empirical evidence. I like things to make sense in my mind. Um, like, if things are illogical, like, I don't even want to deal with them. Like, which makes me a terrible husband sometimes because, like, if my wife's being emotional and not logical, I'm like, I can't process this. I'm an emotional robot. I need counseling for that. Um, but I say that because my logical mind sometimes can read this as, okay, well, this is facts of history and miss the beautiful power of our God. That God in this moment decided to enter in. And some would say that that was an angel. That's in fact, some of the language that we see Nebuchadnezzar say at one point, and then he also says sons of God. Um, like, but whether it's an angel or whether it's the, the pre-incarnate Jesus or the before Jesus was physically born, Jesus entering in, there's something supernatural happening in this moment, and I don't want to miss that God does that, and I don't want to stop believing that he will continue to do that. And so I say that both as a reminder but also as a disclaimer because the power of the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not that God can do this because he's supernatural. It's that we'll worship him even if he doesn't. So I want to go back to our main idea. Trials and opposition are an opportunity for our trust in Jesus to shine brighter than ever. And if that's true, what does that mean about our faith? I think it means this. Resilient faith is not caught off guard by trials. It's strengthened by them. This is what we see about their resilient faith, um, that this trial comes. This is just the third chapter in, and, and they've gone through abstaining from certain foods. They've gone through having to huddle together and pray because Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill everybody that's in their class of wise men because they, he doesn't think anybody can interpret his dream. And this new trial comes, and they don't clutch their pearls and get shocked. They say, we're not worshiping, and we trust our God regardless of the outcome. Resilient faith has this ability to not be caught off guard by trials, but instead is strengthened by them. And before I explain maybe what that might look like for you and I, maybe let me say something to you that may, may be helpful. When you face a trial, here's what's not true about that trial if you have trusted Jesus. That trial is not punitive and it's not purposeless. Punitive is the word that we use when we describe somebody being punished for their actions. If you have trusted Jesus, then Jesus has absorbed all of the wrath of God for you. Therefore, if God is allowing trial to happen in your life, it's not because he's punishing you because you fell asleep during prayer meeting the other day. 
You are not being punished by God. Is there consequence for sin? Absolutely. But God is not putting you through a trial to try and somehow force you into loving him because you've done something wrong and you need to be punished. But it also means that what you're going through is not purposeless. That you didn't just lose out on the random wheel of destiny and so therefore that family member got sick or that loved one lost or, or that person has mistreated you. That wasn't because you just happened to be the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong DNA. That there is a purpose behind what God's doing and he's revealing a way for you to trust him even more. So what does that look like? I think there are four things that resilient faith does in the face of trials that I want to share with you. And here's the first. Expect trials. There's a moment when Jesus is with his followers. He's getting ready to go to the cross to pay the debt of sin. And he looks at them and he says, in this life you will have trouble. I'm just going to tell you, if I was going to try and recruit you to be part of this world-changing movement, I don't know that that sentence is going to be in my, my promotional materials. Not even in the tiny print that they read really fast at the end of the commercial. Like, I'm not telling you, hey, if you follow me in this life, stuff's going to go wrong. And Jesus is honest enough and real enough to say, hey, expect difficulty. Expect trials. Even if you were just reading through the life of the people in the Bible who follow after Jesus, every one of them faces significant, significant difficulty. The only one that seems to not have a difficulty is a guy named Jonah, and then he creates his own difficulty by running from God. And so there's this reality that just because we live in a world that's been broken by sin, trial is going to come. But when those trials do come, they are not purposeless, nor are they a punishment if you've trusted Jesus. Here's number two. Don't give up when trials come. It is far too easy to feel like this thing will never end and I should just quit here. Don't give up when trials come. Number three. Jesus was worth it because of who he is, not just because of what he does. I think the best way to explain this to you is not to um, give you a, a chapter and verse, but to just tell you a story. When I was eight years old, and so think of smaller me, more hair, gap in my teeth, um, playing Mike Tyson's punch out in my bedroom, and my dad had gone, my family's from Ghana, West Africa. That's where we originate from. And so he had gone to Ghana. Uh, his mom had died a couple of years earlier. And so he had gone to Ghana to, to help put some things in her state together. Had come back home. But because he had gone overseas, he wasn't feeling well. We all assumed that he had a flu. He had been sick for about a week. And so I'm in my room playing Mike Tyson's punch out. My dad's not feeling well. My mom's like, he's got a really high fever. We should take him to the emergency room. They're in the bathroom getting ready, and all of a sudden I hear my mom scream. I come running out of my bedroom, and my dad is laying on the floor of our bathroom having a seizure, and my mom is trying to put her hand in his mouth to keep him from biting his tongue. 
What I didn't know at the time with my eight, little eight-year-old brain was the severity of what was happening. And what had happened is that my dad had uh, contracted encephalitis, which is, causes your brain to swell. And with his brain swelling, caused the seizure and, obvious, and also damaged his short-term memory. So much so that later on, when my sisters and I went to go see him, when we walked into the hospital room, he did not know who we were. From that point in time, when I was eight years old to today, my dad has battled the, infect, the effects of encephalitis. Things like there were days when I was growing up when I came home, and I didn't know if when I walked in the front door, if my dad had just gone to run errands, or if my dad was back in the hospital again because of the effects. There are certain smells and foods that he experiences that, that triggers him feeling, feeling ill. His doctors would say that one of the things that he constantly suffers are many strokes that he may not even feel the effects of, but are happening in his body all of the time. This happened around October, and every year around October, he begins to feel the residue of what happened. Some of that may be the disease, some of that may be psychological, but every year during the time of year when it originally happened, he feels that. But the most glaring thing is the fact that his short-term memory struggles, which means every morning when my dad wakes up and opens up his Bible to read, he'll tell you, I don't know if I'm going to remember what I read that day, but I know that it's true, and I know that Jesus loves me in it. And every time I get to have that conversation with my dad, he makes it really clear to me that going through this didn't push me away from Jesus, but actually proved to me that I really believe what he says is true. Trials give you the opportunity to see that Jesus is worth it, not because the end of the story is that, that the Lord miraculously healed my dad. I'm 33 years into this thing and he still hadn't done it yet but he's worth it because of who he is, not because of what he does. And the final thing, don't just expect trials. Don't just not give up when trials come. Don't just let trials show you the beauty of Jesus for who he is and not what he does, but allow trials to help you grow in character. Romans chapter five would say this, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained through him by faith, or we've obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that afflictions produce endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Like he's, he's saying, hey, you need to know that you've been justified by God. That language of justification means people who were guilty have been declared innocent. And therefore, you have peace with God. And because you have peace with God, you now have access to God. Like he's, he's like, and so because we have access to God, we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. Like, these are all things that I love. I love that God has knew me, saw me as a sinner, said, hey, I know how bad and wretched you are, but because of Jesus, I'm going to declare you innocent. Not only am I going to declare you innocent, but now there's nothing between us. You don't got to be fearful of me. 
Now not only do you not have to be fearful of me, but you have access to me. You can come to me with what's bothering you and you can boast that there's a day that's coming where you're gonna know the fullness of my glory. I love all of that. And then the next sentence feels like Paul just got crazy with what he was typing. He says, and not only that, but we get to boast in our afflictions. Hold up, the record just skipped. You mean to tell me that I, I should feel the same way about my afflictions as I do about the glory of God? That somehow that my afflictions, my pain, my suffering, the fact that the world doesn't make sense, the fact that there are people that are pushing against me, making fun of my faith, the fact that I've lost people, the fact that I've dealt with emotional loss, that I'm supposed to look at that in the same way that I look at, at the hope of the glory of God? Because the hope of the glory of God has, is the end product of what God's trying to do, and this is the pathway to get there? That me understanding that these trials that I face, this affliction that I face, produces endurance in me. It gives me the ability to stand when I would want to wilt. And not only does it give me the ability to stand, but that ability to stand, that endurance, then builds into me this character. This ability that when you want to know what's really in me, when I get squeezed, what comes out of me is the character of God because afflictions have built that in me. And I'm supposed to boast in that. And that character ultimately produces hope, which is where we started, this hope of glory, that this is the pathway to get there. Let the trials that you face produce character in you. And I'm just going to tell you, we talked a little bit yesterday about distinction. It's not easy to be distinct from other people when things are going well. If, if I were a millionaire, and I'm not, um, those of you who were in my session this afternoon when I started asking you for money, you guys were like, are, are you trying to rob me? I wasn't, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't because I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> if I were a millionaire because I had some unique skill in software engineering, and I was like, oh, I'm a millionaire because God's given me this skill in software engineering. The person who sits next to me, who's also a millionaire, who doesn't believe in God, who's also good at software engineering, like, man, you think that you learned that from God. I learned that from going to UCLA. When things are going good, there's no distinction in you being excited about the goodness of life. But when things are going bad and you're able to say that God is good regardless of the brokenness that surrounds you, that is a, that is a tune that the church, or that only the church gets to sing. No one else sings that. People who don't trust Jesus don't look at their trials and say, man, this trial is awesome. My hope of future glory is built on going through this trial because I'm gonna get some endurance and some character and that's gonna produce hope in me. Like we don't, you don't have that if you don't have it connected to Jesus. And we see that Daniel and his, and his friends see the beauty of God and trust him so much that their trials only give them more opportunity to shine that trust brighter. And my hope is that that becomes more and more true of you. Whether you're just getting to know Jesus this week or you've walked with him for a long time. Because I've sat with far too many young adults who've said I've given up on Jesus because this happened and it shouldn't have happened to me. The world's broken and he didn't fix it. Instead of seeing that there's an opportunity to trust God more when trials come. I'm afraid far too often we haven't had this conversation that trials are coming, expect them. Don't give up. Grow in your character because of them and see the beauty of Jesus in the middle of them. 
and my hope for you is that the Spirit of God would allow you to do that this week and for the rest of your life. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, you're the perfect example of this. You did not sit in a comfortable seat and warn us of trials that you never faced, but you were willing to give up your life to, by going through the most difficult trial of carrying the sins of the world. So Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to trust you that you are inviting us into something that you've already entered into and said, I will be with you in the midst of it? Would we like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say with all truth and confidence, we know that our God has the power to deliver, to restore, to heal, to make new, to make right, but even if he doesn't, he is, you are worthy of our worship. Would you help us to trust you that deeply and see you that preciously? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.